0: Luke three twenty three. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about thirty years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Mahath, the son of the son of Semen, the son of Joshek, the son of Joda, the son of Jonan, the son of Ressa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Jorim, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Elikim, the son of Mela, the son of Menah, the son of Matath the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Surig, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arpexad, the son of Shim, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enoch, Enos rather, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This now the reading of God's most holy word. May He bless the preaching of it this morning. I do thank you for bearing with me as I. It doesn't matter how often I practice those names. Uh, when it comes time to to pronouncing them in public, it's it's always a challenge. The genealogy of Jesus found here in Luke 3, 23-38 is immensely important, in my opinion. It is far more than a collection of hard-to-pronounce names. And it does not only tell us the facts concerning who Jesus' ancestors were. No, instead, this genealogy of Jesus is filled with meaning. It communicates truth to us concerning who Jesus is And what he came to do. Now to fully appreciate the meaning of this genealogy, we must pay careful attention to the names that are listed here. I think we must also pay careful attention to the order in which they are listed. And to the placement of this genealogy in in Luke's gospel. As we pay attention to these three things, I do believe that the meaning of the genealogy of Luke 3 will... Come to the fore. First of all, let us consider the placement of this genealogy. You probably notice that Luke positions the genealogy of Jesus in an odd place. Where would you expect a genealogy of Jesus to be placed? Uh, Probably at the very beginning of the Gospel and somewhat near to the account of the birth of Jesus. Uh, Genealogical records, you would think, would be presented. Alongside the story of, of, of the birth of uh, the figure, whoever it is. In fact, Matthew presents us with the genealogy of Jesus in his gospel. And that is exactly where he places it. In the very beginning and right before the account of the birth of Christ. Matthew's gospel begins with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And immediately after the genealogy we read... Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. But Luke positions the genealogy of Jesus later in his gospel. He positions it after the account of Jesus' conception and birth, after the story about him in the temple at the age of 12, after the account of his baptism at about the age of 30, and immediately before the account of his temptation in the wilderness, which marked the beginning of his public ministry. The question we must ask is, why? Why did Luke save the genealogy of Jesus so that he might position it here in his gospel? I think the answer is this. Luke saved the genealogy of Jesus for this place so that he might use it to emphasize who Jesus is and what he came to do immediately before telling us about his public ministry. We are about to learn of Jesus' public ministry, the things that he said and the things that he did. But Luke decides to present us with his genealogy right here so that we we might have these things fresh in our mind. Who is Jesus? What was his mission? What did he come to do? Uh, Luke is going to tell us what he did, but he wants these facts to be fresh in our mind. Luke wants us to know for certain... That although Jesus is the eternal Son of God, He is also the Son of Adam. He is truly God and truly man. And as the God-man, He came to do what the first man failed to do, namely to live in perpetual obedience to God and enter into eternal life. In fact, He came to do more than this. Not only would He live in perpetual obedience to God, He would also suffer to the point of death on the cross in order to redeem those that the Father gave to Him eternity, This was the work that only the God-man could do, and I am saying that the genealogy found in Luke's Gospel stresses this truth. Jesus is the God-man. He is the second and greater Adam, and it is placed here, immediately before the account of Jesus' public ministry, so that we might have this truth fresh in our minds as we begin to consider the things that Jesus said and did. So how does the genealogy of Jesus in Luke's gospel communicate that Jesus is the God-man, the second and greater Adam? I want you to notice three things. First of all, look at what immediately precedes the genealogy. It is the account of Jesus' baptism, found in Luke 3, 21-22. And it is there that we learn that when Jesus was baptized, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So, who is Jesus? He is the eternal Son of God. Did you hear me there? Who is Jesus? He is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the Son who eternally proceeds from the Father and breathes forth the Holy Spirit Jesus is the person of the eternal Son who is begotten and not made. This truth was clearly communicated to all who witnessed it at his baptism, and Luke conveys it to us. Secondly, notice how the genealogy of Jesus concludes. In Luke 3.38, we are told that Jesus is the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So then, while Matthew traces Jesus' line of descent as far back as Abraham, Luke traces it all the way back to Adam. And by the way, I'm not claiming that Matthew's genealogy is better than Luke's or that Luke's is better than Matthew's. I'm, I'm simply noticing the differences here. And the the differences are there for a reason. Matthew wished to emphasize that Jesus is the promised son of Abraham and David. Some think that Matthew was writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and so he wished to stress these truths. Jesus is the promised son of Abraham. Jesus is the promised son of David. Whereas Luke, and perhaps he was writing to more of a Gentile audience, wants to emphasize that Jesus is the true son of Adam. He is the father, not of the Jewish people, but of the entire human race. In other words, Luke wants us to know that although Jesus is the son of God, he is also truly human. And of course, this will help us to understand what he came to do, not to save one people, but to save people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. He is truly a son of Adam. Yes, he is the son of God, and he has come to save sons and daughters from the race of men who have descended from Adam. By the way, it is worth noting that Adam is also called the son of God in verse 38. Adam was the son of God, but in a different sense than Jesus is the son of God. Adam was the son of God in that he had God as his direct creator and source, According to Genesis 2, God formed Adam from the dust of the earth and breathed into him the breath of life. Adam was God's son in the sense that God was his creator. But Jesus is the son of God in a much greater way. As it pertains to his personhood, he is the eternally begotten son of the Father, as has already been said. And as it pertains to his human nature, he, like Adam, has God as his direct creator and source. Remember, the man Jesus was not brought into the world through the natural process of procreation, but was born of a virgin. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. Therefore, the child born to her was called holy, the Son of God. That is Luke one thirty-five. So then, Jesus is the Son of God in two senses. Concerning His personhood, He is the eternally begotten Son of the Father... And concerning the human nature that he assumed, he is the son of Adam, the son of God. You see, Jesus and Adam share this in common. They are the only two men brought into this world, not through the natural process of procreation, but by the direct creative activity of God the Father working through the Word and by the Holy Spirit. Adam and Jesus share this in common. They are the only two men, and by that I do mean males, brought into this world in this way, through the direct creative activity of God the Father, working through the Word and by the Holy Spirit. So why did Luke save the genealogy of Jesus for after the story of Jesus' baptism? Well, by presenting Jesus' genealogy here... And by tracing his genealogy back to Adam, Luke clarifies that Jesus is not only the heavenly and eternally begotten Son of the Father, as revealed so clearly at his baptism, but that he is also a true Son of Adam, a true human Son of the Father, in the same way that Adam was. Stated differently, as it pertains to the person of Jesus, he is the eternally begotten, uncreated Son of God, but as it pertains to his humanity, Jesus is the true Son of Adam brought into this world, not through procreation, but by the direct creative activity of God. Truly, the Father formed His inward parts and knitted Him together in His mother's womb. I'm here citing Psalm 139.13. This is true of all of us in a generic sense. The Father forms our inward parts and knits us together in our mother's wombs. But it was especially true of Jesus His human nature was brought into existence in a supernatural way. He derived His humanity from Mary, yes, but it was by the direct creative activity of God Almighty that He was brought into existence. How does the genealogy of Jesus in Luke's Gospel communicate that Jesus is the God-man, the second and greater Adam? I have said by what immediately precedes it, by how it concludes, and thirdly, by what follows Namely, the story of the temptation of Jesus by Satan in the wilderness. So, notice what precedes this passage, the genealogy. Notice how the genealogy concludes by insisting that Jesus is the son of Adam, the son of God. Notice also what comes next in Luke's gospel. It is the story of the temptation of Jesus by Satan in the wilderness. Lord willing, we'll consider this passage with with care in a future sermon. For now, I want you to notice two things. One, The story concerning the temptation of Christ in the wilderness is certainly meant to be compared and contrasted with the story of the temptation of Adam in the garden. These two stories are similar in some ways. Adam and Christ were both tempted in a pronounced way by the evil one, both stories are about human sons of God who were created to function as covenantal representatives being tempted by Satan to disobey God and to serve Satan and themselves instead. How do these stories differ? One, Adam was tempted in paradise, whereas Christ was tempted in the wilderness. Two, Adam was a mere man, whereas the person of Jesus is the eternally begotten Son, Even Satan knew this, by the way, as Luke 4.3 makes clear. Satan came to Jesus in the wilderness and said to Him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. In other words, Satan knew that this was no mere man, but this was the very Son of God, uh, the person of the eternally begotten Son incarnate, and so he tempted Him in this way. If you are the Son of God, in other words, if you are more than just a mere man, then do this. He tempted Jesus in this way. And in 4.12, Jesus rebuked Satan saying, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, Satan, by you tempting me, you are not tempting a mere man. You are tempting the Lord God, the God who is creator of heaven and earth. You are in fact tempting the person of the eternally begotten Son of God. And so this text is clear that Jesus was no mere man. I think The most important way in which the temptation stories differ is that Adam failed, whereas Christ succeeded. We will consider all of that in a future sermon. The point for now is this. Luke positioned the genealogy of Jesus in between the account of His baptism and immediately before the account of His temptation in the wilderness for a reason. He wants us to know for certain... And I'm here reminding you of what he said in Luke 1.4, that Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Adam. Jesus is the God-man, and Luke uses the genealogy of Jesus to firmly establish this before telling us about his earthly ministry. So we have considered the placement of the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Luke's gospel. Let us now consider the order in which the names are listed. And I will not devote so much time to this second point, for it overlaps with the first somewhat. The thing that I want you to notice is that while Matthew begins his genealogy with Abraham and works his way forward historically up to Jesus, Luke moves in the opposite direction. He begins with Jesus and moves back in history, concluding with mention made of Adam. Again, I say to you, Luke wants to emphasize that Jesus is the son of Adam. Luke wants us to have Adam fresh in our minds as we move on then to consider the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. He wants us to make a connection between the experience of Jesus and the experience of Adam. He wants to see these two, uh, wants us to see these two men as being very much related in some important ways. We're to contrast and compare the temptation of Adam and Jesus and to see that both of these men function as covenantal heads. By concluding his genealogy with Adam, Luke presents Jesus to us as the second and greater Adam. Just as Adam functioned as the head or representative of the covenant of works that God made with him and with humanity in the beginning, so too Jesus Christ is the head or representative of a new humanity, and of a new covenant, which is the covenant of grace. What I just said there, brothers and sisters, is so very important to understanding the message of the Bible and the very gospel of Jesus Christ itself. When God created Adam in the beginning, He entered into a covenant with him. It was a covenant that promised life upon the keeping of it. It was a covenant that promised death upon the breaking of it. And what happened except that Adam, our federal head or covenantal representative... He fell. And he was plunged into sin, into a state of sin and ruin. But not only him, the whole human race was plunged into a state of sin and death too. Why? Because Adam functioned as the representative of that covenant. He stood for all of humanity. And we're to see that the very same thing is true of Christ. Christ functions as a federal head or representative of a new humanity, and of a new covenant. Both Adam and Christ are federal or covenantal heads. They represent others, is the point. And we must see it. Adam's success would have meant success for the whole human race. Adam's failure meant failure for the whole human race. For he was appointed by God as our head and representative. And something similar is true of Jesus Christ. God appointed him as, a head, as the head of Of a new covenant and a new humanity. By concluding this genealogy with Adam, Luke presents Jesus to us as the second Adam. He wants us to view everything that Jesus said and everything that he did in his earthly ministry in light of this fact. Jesus is no ordinary man, he is the God man, he is the second Adam, the head of a new humanity and a new covenant. Though the first and second Adam share some things in common, they differ in one. Very important respect. Jesus Christ is the victorious Adam. He is the man who was victorious over sin. Never did he succumb to temptation. He was victorious over Satan. And we will and we will see this in the passage that follows. Instead of listening to the voice of Satan as the first Adam did, he stomped on Satan's head as it were. Here I am, of course, echoing Genesis 3.15. And therefore, Christ was victorious over death. Did you hear the word therefore? Why did Christ raise from the dead on the third day? Why did He do it? It is because He was obedient to the Father perfectly and perpetually. He was the victorious second Adam. Never did He sin. Therefore, He was not brought under condemnation. He was not brought into the state of death, you see. All of this is crucial to understanding what follows in Luke's Gospel. All of this is crucial to understanding why... Jesus Christ has earned salvation for us. He was victorious and we are victorious in Him. Victorious over sin and even death. Death could not hold Him. He died and rose again on the third day because He was the obedient second Adam. The reason that Luke ordered his genealogy in this way moving from Jesus back to Adam and concluding with Him is so that we would have this theme of Jesus as the second and greater Adam, fresh in our minds as we begin to consider the things that he said and did in his earthly ministry, beginning with his temptation in the wilderness and his victory over the evil one there. So we have considered the placement and order of the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Luke's gospel. Let us now consider the names that are listed here. First of all, I think it is well known that the names listed in the genealogies of Jesus found in Matthew and Luke differ significantly from one another. Are you aware of that? I think think a lot of people are aware of this fact. When you set Matthew's genealogy alongside Luke's genealogy, the names differ significantly from uh, one another. And this is especially true of the period of time from King David... To King Jesus. The names do not match at all and this provides us with an interpretive uh, uh, a challenge, right? Why do they not match? I thought this graphic might be helpful. Luke's genealogy is on the right side and Matthew's is, is on the left. Are we able to bring that up? Uh, oh, it's not coming up? I'm glad I peeked because you would have thought I was crazy uh, if I would have just continued on as if it were there behind me. <laughs> Well, if it comes up, uh, it might be helpful to you. Again, I say to you, Luke's genealogy is on the right side of this graphic, whereas Matthew's is on uh, the, the left side over here. Uh, I want you to simply look at the bottom of these genealogies. I will not read all of the names and embarrass myself once more with mispronunciations. Uh, Simply look at the bottom and notice that Luke lists Heli as Joseph's father, whereas Matthew lists Jacob. So the problems are already obvious, aren't they? Uh, Why do Matthew and Luke list different fathers uh, for Joseph? And if you look up to the center of the graphic, you will notice that Luke traces Jesus' genealogy uh, from Nathan, the lesser-known son of David, whereas Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy from David's better-known son, Solomon. The genealogies match from David to Abraham, and I've already told you that Luke takes us all the way back to Adam. The question is, how do we explain the differences between the two genealogies from King David to Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus? Uh, Quoting now the notes in the ESV study Bible, I quote these notes because I know a lot of you use uh, the ESV Bible and might have access to the study Bible notes. The most commonly accepted suggestion uh, to solve this apparent problem is that Matthew traces the line of royal succession moving from David to Solomon, while Luke traces Joseph's actual physical descent Moving from David to Nathan, a little known son mentioned in 2 Samuel 5.14 and Luke 3.31. And both lines converge at Joseph. Do you see how this would provide a kind of solution to this problem? Um, the idea is that Matthew wishes to trace the line of royal succession, moving from David, King David to King Solomon. Whereas Luke traces Joseph's actual physical descent, moving from David to Nathan. Then there are various explanations for the two different people named as Joseph's father. Uh, so this, this idea that it's a royal succession and an actual physical descent doesn't solve the problem of the two different names mentioned for Joseph's father, uh, Jacob and Matthew and Heli and Luke. In most proposed solutions, they are thought to be different people, and a second marriage is assumed, sometimes a Leverite marriage. And see note on Matthew twenty-two twenty-four 24, says the ESV study Bible notes. So then Joseph uh, was the legal son of one, but the physical son of the other, and thus there are two lines of ancestry for the two men. This can make your head spin as you try to, okay, what, what, what exactly is going on here? And so the ESV study Bible presents this as uh, the most commonly accepted suggestion today. Uh, What we have in Matthew is royal succession. What we have in Luke is actual physical descent uh, traced out. But there is an older solution to the problem. And although the ESV study Bible uh, dismisses it, I think it is the better solution. I'll quote again the ESV study Bible. An old suggestion is that Matthew traces Joseph's ancestry while Luke traces Mary's ancestry. Uh, I go on quoting, but very few commentators defend this solution today because 127 refers to Joseph, not Mary, and taking 3.23 as a reference to Mary's ancestry requires the unlikely step of inserting Mary into the text where she is not mentioned, but Joseph is mentioned. But then a little later in this section, the ESV Study Bible mentions a third option, saying, some commentators have suggested that Heli was Mary's father, But that there were no male heirs in the family, so Heli adopted Joseph as his son when Mary and Joseph were married. And here a number of Old Testament texts are cited uh, for inheritance through daughters where there is no son. And in fact, I do think that this is precisely what is going on here. I think what we find in Luke is not Joseph's actual genealogy, but Mary's genealogy traced through her husband, Joseph, the adopted son of Mary's father, Heli, and the adoptive father of Jesus. So Joseph is named, and he is in fact the son of Heli because he was brought into the family through his marriage to Mary. But what we have is her line of descent traced all the way back to David, and to Abraham, and to Adam, and not Joseph's. Whereas Matthew uh, follows Joseph's actual descent. Uh, genealogy. That's my opinion. I I think this is the genealogy of Mary that we have in Luke and that Joseph is inserted into it in a way by way of adoption. Joseph was adopted by Mary's father Heli. I wonder if the little comment that Jesus was the son of Joseph as was supposed, did you see that in our text for today? Uh, This little remark uh, that That Joseph was the the, the father of Jesus, or Jesus was the son of Joseph, as was supposed. I wonder if that little remark is meant to nudge us in this direction. Just as Joseph was not the biological but legal son of Heli, so too Jesus was not the biological but legal son of Joseph, given the fact of the virgin birth. And that Luke would choose to trace Jesus' genealogy through Mary's line also makes sense theologically. It makes sense theologically. I want you to think again of where Luke takes us in this genealogy. Where does he take us? He takes us not to Abraham, but through Abraham all the way back to Adam. And what promise did God deliver to Adam after he fell into sin? What promise did he deliver to Adam after Adam fell into sin? God promised to provide... A Redeemer who would one day be brought into the world. And how would this Redeemer be brought into the world? How, how specifically did God say this Redeemer would be brought into the world? It's interesting. God did not say that the Redeemer would be brought into the world through Adam's seed, but through the seed of the woman. Genesis 3.15 This Redeemer would be wounded by Satan in the process. Satan would strike at his heel. But he would ultimately win the victory over Satan's sin and death. This Redeemer would stomp on the head of Satan. The Redeemer is Jesus Christ, and he was born not of the man, but of the woman. For he was conceived not in an ordinary way, but miraculously by the power of God Most High. He was born of the Virgin Mary. Joseph was his father as it was supposed, you see. Joseph was not his father truly, biologically. Joseph was his father only in this adoptive sense. And so I am saying to you that it is not surprising at all that Luke would want to highlight Mary's line. He takes us all the way back to Adam. And when he takes us back to Adam, he wants us to remember not only the broken covenant of works, but that first promise of the gospel that was delivered to Adam. And what was the promise about? It was about the coming Redeemer who would be brought into the world through the seed of Eve, through the seed of the woman, not through the seed of Adam. But the question remains, why mention Joseph at all? If this is Mary's line, then why not simply say that Jesus is the son of Mary? Why say that he is the son of Joseph, and then add the little phrase, as was supposed? I, I think the answer is this. By saying that Jesus is the son of Joseph, as was supposed, Luke does not only emphasize the fact of the virgin birth, he reminds us of that fact with the words, as was, it suppo- as was supposed. He also draws our attention To the way in which Jesus descended from Adam without being born in Adam, if you know what I mean. Let me say that again. By mentioning Joseph and by adding the phrase, as was supposed, Luke does not only emphasize the fact of the virgin birth, he also draws our attention to the way in which Jesus descended from Adam without being born in Adam. Do you see the difference? Did Jesus descend from Adam? Well, yes, in this sense. He was born of Mary. But was He born in Adam? Was He born with Adam as His covenantal head or representative? Was He born in Adam and under that broken covenant of works, the covenant that Adam broke in the garden? Answer, no. He was not born into this world, fallen. Jesus descended from Adam and that Mary descended from Adam Jesus was born through her he obtained his human nature from her but Jesus was not born in Adam covenantally speaking Adam was the head of the covenant of works not Eve the covenant of works was broken when Adam sinned not Eve and all who are born to Adam in this world are born guilty in sin under the broken covenant of works you see The blessings of that covenant are no longer available. The curses of that covenant fall on all who are born to Adam. Again, I say to you, though Jesus descended from Adam through Eve and through Mary, he was not born in Adam because Joseph was not his father. He was only his father, as was supposed, that is to say, by way of adoption, not by birth. Jesus has one father. God Almighty. He has one mother, the Virgin Mary. He was born of her, yet without sin, for the transmission of original sin was removed when Joseph was bypassed. When Joseph is called the father of Jesus, as was supposed, Luke's point is look at how Adam was bypassed. Look at how Adam. And the transmission of sin that comes through way of ordinary generation was skipped right over. Joseph was skipped over. Joseph was the adoptive father of Jesus. Or another way to say it perhaps is this. Jesus adopted Joseph as his father. It's it's the principle of adoption here. Adam, as our federal head under the Covenant of Works was bypassed when Joseph was bypassed in this process. And I think Luke inserts his name here, along with this little qualifying remark, in order to stress all of that, if we're carefully reading not just this passage, but the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we will be able to see, I think, what Luke is conveying. I think it's beautiful. I, th- I think it's, it's marvelous to consider. Joseph was the father of Jesus, as was supposed, in appearance only, by way of adoption. We've been considering the names that are listed in Luke's genealogy, and so far we have focused on the differences between Matthew's list and Luke's. Now, let us consider what they share in common. Both Matthew and Luke trace the genealogy of Jesus through King David and Father Abraham. This is very important Because God promised to give Father Abraham a son who would bless the nations in Genesis 12. And God promised to give King David a son who would sit on an eternal throne and establish an eternal kingdom. Jesus is that son. Both Matthew and Luke stress that point, each in their own way. The third thing that I want you to notice about the names listed in Luke's genealogy is that Luke traces us all the way, traces this genealogy genealogy all the way back to Adam. And in particular, I want to draw your attention to the line that Luke traces from Adam to Abraham. It is the righteous line that he traces and not the wicked line. Indeed, all humanity descended from Adam and Eve, physically speaking. But as you know, God cursed the serpent after man's fall into sin, saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15 Now the meaning of this becomes clear in the Genesis narrative. There would be two lines that descended from Adam and Eve. There would be a line that is called Eve's seed. It is all who have faith in the the promised Messiah who belong to that righteous line. But there is also another line that descends from Adam and Eve and these are those who belong to the serpent. Both of these lines descend from Adam and Eve physically speaking, but spiritually speaking there are two lines that descend from them. As I said, the meaning of this becomes clear in the Genesis narrative. Think of it. Eve gave birth to two sons. Who were they? The very first two that are mentioned in the Genesis narrative. Cain and Abel. Both descended from her physically, but only Abel shared her faith and thus belonged to God. Cain clearly belonged to the evil one. His actions showed it. Being driven by envy, he rose up and killed his own brother, Abel. He killed his own brother, remember. And so the Lord gave Eve another son to take his place. His name was Seth. And so the story continues. From Adam and Eve, there descended a wicked line. Physically, it was through the seed of Cain, and spiritually, it was the seed of the serpent. And a righteous line. Physically, it was the seed of Seth who replaced Abel, and spiritually, it was the seed of the woman. The wicked line is recorded for us in Genesis 4. If you were to go back to Genesis 4, you would see that there's a genealogy there. But it traces out this wicked line, the line of Cain. It's epitomized by the wicked man named Lamech. In Genesis 4.19, we learn that he took two wives. So it's a perversion of God's order for marriage. And in Genesis 4.23, we are told of his tyrannical ways, his injustice, and his arrogant boasting. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77fold. So he's beating his chest, boasting to his two wives. He's perverting God's design for marriage. He's not upholding justice, but he is a, a, a tyrannical figure. He killed a man merely for wounding him. That is not retributive justice. That's a perversion of justice. So this whole wicked line that descended from Cain is epitomized by this one figure, Lamech. It is in Genesis 5 that the righteous line of Seth is traced. It begins with Adam and Eve. It runs through Seth, who God gave to Adam and Eve to replace Abel, who was killed. And it concludes with Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. After the flood, Noah's son Shem is set apart as blessed, and his line is recorded for us in Genesis 11:10 10, and following. It includes figures such as Eber, Peleg, Nahor, Terah, and finally Abram, who was later given the name Abraham. If you were to read the genealogy of Jesus as recorded by Luke, and if you were to compare the names that he lists, from the time of Adam to Abraham, with the genealogies of Genesis 4, 5, 10, and 11, you would certainly get Luke's point. Luke wants us to know for certain that Jesus Christ is the offspring that was promised to Eve. Are you following me on all of this? Sometimes I just need to pause and ask. This is a a lot of information. Are you following me? I pray you are not getting drowsy by listening to all this. This is immensely important. Luke didn't waste space when he wrote his gospel, brothers and sisters. He didn't say, oh, I guess I have to include this genealogy. I know they're all going to fall asleep when they read it, because it doesn't mean anything. No, Luke wrote to Theophilus so that he might be certain, so that he might have certainty concerning the things he had been taught, This genealogy here that we are considering in Luke 3 is crucial. For here, the descent of Jesus is traced back to Adam. But in particular, it is traced back to Adam through this righteous line that descended from Adam and Eve. Not through Cain, but through Seth. He wants us to see this. He wants us to know for certain that Jesus Christ is the offspring that was promised to Eve. Stated negatively, He is not the son of Cain or Lamech. He is not the son of Ham or Japheth. Stated positively, he is the son of Seth, Enoch, Noah, Shem, Eber, Terah, Abraham, and David. Jesus Christ is no ordinary descendant of Adam. He is the promised one. He is the singular offspring that was promised to Adam and Eve shortly after they had fallen into sin. He is the singular offspring who was preserved in the days from Adam to Abraham through the line of Seth and Shem. He is the singular offspring who was promised to Abraham. He is the singular offspring who was promised to King David. This is what Paul teaches in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. That is Galatians 3.16. And this same truth is presented to us in the genealogy of Luke 3. What Paul says in didactic form, that, that same truth is communicated to us in genealogical form, Here in Luke chapter 3, he traces Jesus' descent back to Adam, but through this particular line the line of David, excuse me, the line of David, the line of Abraham, but more particularly, it's the line of Seth that he traces out so that we might see that this is indeed the promised one of God. I feel like going on a tangent here and ranting and raving for just a little bit. Brothers and sisters, if this bores you, we have a problem. We have a problem. If you're listening to a sermon like this, and I don't think it's true for any of you, but maybe someone else will stumble upon this sermon someday online. If you're frustrated right now with me as a preacher going, make this practical for me. (laughs) Tell me something important. When are you going to get to something important for my life? We have a major problem. The Scriptures consistently put forth this sort of information before us because the Scriptures are not primarily about you The Scriptures are about Jesus Christ and our salvation in Him. They become practical, no doubt. But they become practical only, only when we center our lives on Christ and see that the Scriptures are all about Him and the salvation that is ours in Him. And so then we must see Christ not only in the New Testament, but even in the earliest pages of the Old as well. In Genesis 3.15, He is there. He is there, preserved in the line of Seth. He is there, preserved in the line of Shem. He is there, promised to Abraham. He is there, promised to David. And we know that He is the Christ in part because He descended from these. He did not come from one of these deviant lines. He came from the line of the righteous that God set apart even in the days of Adam and Eve. I think it is marvelous to consider how God promised to send a Redeemer so long ago. I think it is marvelous to consider how God preserved that Redeemer through Seth, Shem, Eber, Abraham, and the Eberus, until the time had fully come. Yes, I pronounced Hebrews differently, but it's to make the point that these were the descendants of Eber. And as Paul says in Galatians four four. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, (laughs) born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So just consider it, brothers and sisters, for a time, for a time, the eternal Son of God submitted Himself to Joseph, As an adopted son, so that through his victorious life, death, and resurrection, he might reconcile many sons and daughters of Adam to God the Father as beloved and adopted children of the Most High. There's something going on here with the theme of adoption. I'm certain of it. It's just difficult to put it into words. But just think of what is going on here. For a time, the eternal Son of God submitted himself to Joseph as an adopted son, so that through his victorious life, death, and resurrection, he might reconcile many sons and daughters of Adam to God the Father as beloved and adopted children of the Most High. I think this is all marvelous to consider. For me, it gives me chills to think about it. God's grace and God's ways are truly marvelous indeed. I'd like to conclude now by offering a few suggestions for application. And I've already kind of of jumped forward to the first one, in fact. I got ahead of myself. One, may I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to resist the temptation to read the Bible in a self-centered way, endlessly searching for an encouraging word for yourself or practical instruction, and to read the Bible instead in a Christ-centered way. The Bible does provide great encouragement. It is filled with teaching that is practical indeed. But to be truly encouraged and to really learn the way of wisdom, one must approach this book as being primarily about God and the Christ that He has sent. The Bible is about Jesus. It is about His person and the work that he has done to reconcile fallen sinners to God. Look for Christ when you read the Bible, brothers and sisters. Look for him in the Pentateuch. Look for him in the books of wisdom and poetry. Look for him in the historical books. Look for him in the scriptures Old Testament and New. And when you see him, when you see Christ there, you are to run to him. You are to embrace him You are to then learn how to worship and serve Him always. Before you ask the question, how does this text apply to me personally, ask, how does this text reveal the glory and grace of God in Christ Jesus? Only then will the Scriptures provide true and constant encouragement for your soul. Yes, when you read the Scriptures in a Christ-centered way, you will even find encouragement in the genealogies of Genesis and Luke. I'm convinced of it. As you read these genealogies in a Christ-centered way, you'll even find encouragement in them. Why? Because these lists of hard-to-pronounce names find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. And only after finding Christ in the text can a proper application be made. So friends, read the Scripture in a Christ-centered way, not in a Christless way. That will only lead to legalism and moralism, but we are not legalists, we are not moralists, we are Christians. All of our moral obedience to God, all of our law-keeping must be rooted in and flow out of faith in Jesus the Christ with the strength that the Holy Spirit supplies. Two, if you do not find encouragement in the genealogy of Luke 3, may I encourage you to reflect more carefully about your sin what your sin deserves, the marvelous grace that God has shown to sinners like you and me, and the wisdom of God to accomplish our salvation as He has. The Scriptures say that these are things into which angels long to look. 1 Peter 1.12 says, These things, these things regarding the accomplishment of redemption in Christ Jesus, are things in which angels long to look. How dull our minds and how hard our hearts, how blind our eyes must be to remain unimpressed and unmoved at the thought of the accomplishment of our redemption through Christ, the second Adam and Son of God. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord soften our hearts and sharpen our minds so that we would see Christ as glorious and be moved to gratitude and to worship. Three, may I encourage you to think carefully about the progress made in the history of redemption and the great change that took place once the Messiah was brought into the world through Eve and through the descendants of Abraham. In particular, I want you to note this. Genealogies no longer matter. Genealogies, present ones, no longer matter. They matter in the scriptures. The genealogies of Luke and of Matthew matter greatly. They take us back to the genealogies of Genesis in a most important way. But genealogies today no longer matter. From Adam to Christ, the righteous line that descended from Eve could be traced genealogically. But now that the Christ has come in fulfillment to the promises previously made, God's covenant people are not identified by way of genealogy, but only by faith. As Paul says, Under the new covenant, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, says Galatians 3.7. This simple observation concerning the progression and the accomplishment of our redemption will impact many things. It will have an effect on who we baptize, not our children who descend from us physically, but all who repent and profess faith in Christ. It will have an effect on how we view those of a def- different ethnic- ethnicity. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all in all, says Colossians Three eleven, but the application I really wish to make is to our children. Many of you, young people, have been raised in the church and in homes where the gospel is believed and preached. You've been born by the grace of God to believing parents, and that is a great blessing. Uh, that that is a great blessing to have been. "'Born into a house where the gospel is present "'and to be brought to a church where the gospel is preached. "'But young people, I want you to hear me. "'You are not born into Christ. "'You must be reborn. "'By God's grace, you must choose to turn from your sin and to Christ. "'From the days of Abraham on to the resurrection of Christ, "'children were born into the Old Covenant community.'" But it is not so with the New Covenant and with the New Covenant community, the Church. Children, I'm speaking to you and I'm saying that you, like all of us, were born in Adam. You were born in sin. You were born under the covenant of works that he broke. You were born into this world guilty before God, therefore. And as your pastor, I must urge you to turn from your sins and to place your faith in Jesus Christ, the second and greater Adam, our Redeemer, our friend. And as you grow in maturity and come to the point where you are able to make a credible profession of faith, you are to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May the Lord bless us to see many such baptisms in the days and years to come. My message to our young people, my suggestion for application is this know for certain that you are not born into Christ. You must be reborn into Him. You are born into Adam. We come to be in Christ. We come to have Him as our federal head and covenantal representative, not through genealogical descent, but only by faith. May we be found in Him when the Lord returns or calls us home. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, We thank you for the Holy Scriptures that do reveal Christ to us so beautifully. We thank you even for these portions of Scripture that contain genealogies. Help us to understand why they are here. Help us to see Christ in them. And I do pray that you would show mercy and grace to all of us. That we would run to Christ and cling to Him. That we would see Him as our great Savior, our great Redeemer that you have provided for us. O Lord, grant us faith. And having granted us faith, grant us also maturity. May we go on to maturity, O Lord. May Christ dwell in us richly. And may you get the glory. In his name we pray. Amen.